Welcome to the Orangutan Podcast. I am your host, Anthony Porter. I'm Gary Shapiro. And journey under the canopy with us and through the woods as we discover the rainforest and its conservation. Did you like that one? That's a, that's a good one. All right. Well, I was also thinking of grab some boots and bug nets <laughs> or swing through the trees with mud on your knees. But <laughs> we'll see how this one plays out. Perfect. So this is the first installment of our podcast today. Um, to start off, we at the Orangutan Republic should probably take a step back. And I want to hear a bit about the story of Dr. Gary Shapiro and how all of this started. So to start off, let's rewind a bit. The year is 1973. Dr. Gary Shapiro has a beautiful, luscious mane of hair, maybe a skateboard in hand, and uh, fresh out of university and a degree in your hand. Correct. It's time to figure out what you're going to be doing in life. And what are your thoughts going on in your head? Well, my thought was, well, in 73, when I just finished my degree in zoology, well, that rhymes. Um, yeah, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. But um, actually, two years before that, in 71, when I was leaving Sierra College, thinking I was going to be a, the next Jacques Cousteau, you know, marine biologist, the mm. guy who loved diving, and I still do. But at that time, I did not apply early enough for the school that I wanted to go to, which would have been Humboldt State College. Ah. That would have been like the entry to Scripps and other uh, graduate schools where I would have gone on to do marine biology. But instead, I went to Fresno, Fresno State at the time, <laughs> and when I was working on my bachelor's, uh, I was started thinking about what I was going to do for my next part of my life. I was pre-med, so I had applied to medical school, and wow. that didn't work out. So I went on for my master's degree and stayed at uh, Fresno. And as it turned out, my professor, Dick Haas, who uh, was teaching animal behavior, had a connection with the zoo in Fresno and Paul Chaffee who was the director uh, wanted to encourage students to come out to the zoo and do research with some of the animals there and I had remembered uh, meeting Dr. Jane Goodall a couple of years before that ding 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 that's a name ding 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 yeah and I had sat in the front row of her present when she was doing her presentation at, at the school with uh, Alan and Beatrice Gardner. They were the two professors uh, at, fr at Reno, uh, University of Reno, teaching this chimpanzee named Washoe sign language. And it just so happens that Jane knew of them, called them up the day uh, she came to uh, Sacramento and made the phone call. Um, they drove over the Sierra Nevadas, came down to Rockland, where Sierra College is located, and I sat next to them while <laughs> Jane was talking about chimpanzees. And she, she'd been in the field for a number of years, but certainly this was well before her fame became, uh, you know, as it is now. Um, explosive. Yeah. Very explosive. So I remembered that, and I said, you know, um, well, the, the gardeners... They've already worked with a chimpanzee, and I had heard there was an orangutan at the Fresno Zoo, and I said to myself, well, maybe I could try to teach sign language 
to this orangutan. As as one just decides. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I was always interested in talking with animals, mm. you know, and communicating with them. You know, I would talk with frogs and, you know, I'd make ribbits and all that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they would, they would answer. So I thought, you know, well, nobody's ever tried working with, with an orangutan before in this way. Mm-hmm. And I was always interested in doing something unique and not just following the footsteps of another professor, you know, following on his research or her research, but wanted to do something completely novel. And so I got the support of my professor, Dick Haas, and, and uh, Dr. Paul Chaffee uh, to be able to go into this cage with this orangutan named Azak. And um, what, what, I, what I did find out when I contacted the gardeners and, and mentioned I wanted to do this, they suggested for the sake of, you know, your research, you might want to try a different methodology. Don't teach this orangutan sign language. Teach it symbolic communication the way David Premack used with the chimpanzee Sarah. Now, symbolic language, how does that differentiate from sign language? Um, it's different in, in, the, in that instead of using uh, signs, you would use plastic chips or colorful symbols to act like words, hmm. just like you would use your hand configuration. Oh. Yeah. I listened to what the gardener said. Instead of going in with, with Azak and molding her hands into signs like they would do with the chimpanzees, I went out to uh, Toys R Us and bought a kit of these plastic children's letters, like a red A and a blue N, and they had magnets on the back. You know, you put them on your refrigerator, yeah. right? I got a nephew. Yeah. I did, he throws them around, yeah. but we try to make them use them. Yeah, so I, that's why I said, why should I go out and, you know, stamp out, you know, unique plastic chips, right, like, like David Premack did? Mm-hmm. And so I just got off-the-shelf hardware <laughs> and brought it in the cage, and introduced myself with Azak and she came of course and she wanted to play and this is what young orangutans would rather do they'd rather swing and have you push them and tickle them and have fun with them so of course I had to do that to establish a relationship so you're you're saying that orangutans are also ticklish would you say the same level that we are um, you know, it's it's comparable. I can't say same. I'll okay. say they like being tickled, and they don't they don't laugh like we do. They just go kind of. A, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just kind of make that sound when you're when you're tickling them that way, hmm. and um, that became very important when I was working with an orangutan later. Uh, but with Azak, you know, she would rather just kind of. Uh, swing around on her swing inside the cage. And this was one of those old-fashioned cages you will not see very often anymore. I mean, uh, they basically uh, got rid of them because it looks too much like uh, these these types of roadside zoo cages or, mm. or cages where they have the bars and uh, or mesh link fence and very sterile on the inside. Mm-hmm. So it's not the kind of a place you'd want to keep uh, a very intelligent animal like an, like an orangutan. Um, but at the time, it was very convenient for me to go in. And there was a night house in the back. So I would work with Azak uh, before the zoo opened. 
and would bring in my little kit of the children's letters and we'd have this tray um, and the idea was to exchange the letter for something of value like fruit so I would I would have apples, bananas, and oranges. That was the first thing I wanted to do was teach her groups. The, yeah, the three food groups, right? And teach her the symbols for these different fruits. And all she had to do originally was to like grab one and put it down, or she preferred to hand it to me. Mm. Just so I would put my hand out there, and she would give it to me, and I would set it down. But eventually, she would start setting things down, and the idea would have this exchange. Over time, she would associate the fruit referent with the plastic symbol. Mm-hmm. And later, once she got that down, it would be, I would introduce a new symbol like G, forgive. Oh, right? I see. And she would have to put give banana. And then I'd give her the banana. And she tried, she put the, the symbol for take down once, take banana. So I took the banana. And she never used that. (laughs) (laughs) What is this for? I just lose things. This tea just makes me lose things. Exactly. So, so she understood. She started to understand the the meaning of the plastic symbols and how it would result in her getting something or not getting something. Mm -hmm. And over time, I got her to expand the sentence into Gary give banana to Azak. Wow. And I would have an alternative for the different positions. So she could do different types of sentences. And I, what I wanted to do, and again, this was for a master's thesis. It wasn't you know, for a PhD at the time. Certainly, um, it went on for almost two years that I, that I was doing this work. Um, I, I wanted to understand some of the aspects of language that had been kind of elucidated by psycholinguistics mm-hmm. about what makes language language? You know, what are the different features of language? And so that was that became kind of the, the thesis of my, my work that I did. So I did that with Azak. I got a chance to get to know an orangutan face to face, actually very closely, intimately. I mean, she hugged me. She would like, you know, just jump all over me. She would like to be played. And then she had a, a cage mate named Keefley. Mm-hmm. who would also come out sometimes and kind of bother me. <laughs> you know, as I'm busy working with Azak, I'd feel something like in my ear and I'd look up and, and there he was kind of like poking me <laughs> in my ear while I'm busy working with Azak and I'd have to shoo him away, you know, you know, very gently. But he was he wanted to be part of the action. He wanted to see what was going ah, on. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're here. You're you're symbolically educating these these orangutans into ways that that people haven't done previously. Right. Right. Your family is presumably thinking that you're getting your master's degree in something else, or how are they feeling at the time of you doing stuff like this? Oh no, they were completely supportive. How I mean, cool. I, yeah. I mean, they they knew I was doing this for my for my master's thesis. I think. The other shock that came was when I decided to go off to the jungles of Borneo years later. That's a a bigger leap, right? You know, going from the safety and confines of a city to, you know, another country in the middle of the jungle. Um, But but my mother was very supportive of that, too. Well, that's perfect. Yeah. So that started with Azak. Azak was my, my first orangutan love. And from there, um, 
after I finished my degree, I also wanted to figure out, well, what do I want to do? And I tried once again to uh, go into medical school, and that didn't work. It was very competitive at the time, and I, frankly, I'm glad I never went into medical school because of all the headaches, you know, and what goes on. I mean, my gosh, I, I feel so, so sad when I think about the medical professionals who had to go through the pandemic. Oh, my goodness. Burnout and all of that. It's just incredibly challenging. I mean, I wanted to be either a cardiologist or a neurologist. And was this like a hobby? Were you just thinking offhandedly, you're like, yeah, I want to be a cardiologist? Or is this more of a center stage in your head? I, you know, since I was 12, I was fascinated with the human body. I would make drawings and I would study them at night. I would put these large posters I would make myself above my bed and I would like look up before I went to sleep and I went on these, you know, incredible voyages inside the body. Wow. And I had this this vision of, of becoming um, a medical doctor um, for many, many years. Just as a reference, when I was 12, I was drawing uh, battle axes and, and, and like skyscrapers with people flying off them with bird wings. So <laughs> that's admirable that yeah. you were in that headspace in that, in that age. Well, I was pre-med when I was at my junior college. I continued to pursue it. Um, and while I was also doing the work with ASAC, I was involved in doing research on biofeedback, uh, uh, a way of measuring um, brain waves and wow. understanding how to control them uh, through practice, kind of uh, in that other arena, which fascinates me. Also, it's till this day I'm fascinated by. Did you decide to get into astrophysics for the fun of it as well? I, I wanted to be an <laughs> astronaut. <laughs> Unfortunately, of course you did. I mean, I, I, I watched all the rocket launches, and you know, I'm st I started a space organization at, at my other universe. So uh, that was a yeah. joke, by the way. And then he that totally said, "Yeah, I actually wanted to be an astronaut." No, well. <laughs> no. I mean, people know me. I'm I'm fascinated with space, and um, I'm I'm fascinated with all kinds of science. I mean, it's it's to me so important to be well-rounded, and I think that's what education is all about, is, is to be well-rounded and, of course, find a few things that you can specialize in and get good at. So, you know, at the time, medicine didn't work out for me, and that was okay. I went to the University of Oklahoma because that's where Washoe went, mm. and I had applied to go on to get my doctorate at the University of Oklahoma. Um, they were encouraging interdisciplinary group uh, research as well. So I went there as a zoologist to the Department of Zoology, but I worked across campus with psychology. Nice. And I had a chance to meet Washoe, get to know her, went on some walks with her, um, work with the other chimpanzees there. And I got to understand chimpanzees in a, in a very profound way because we also had to interact with them face-to-face, -face, sit down with them, mold their hands, uh, and understand a little bit about chimpanzee politics, which is quite different. Now, I've heard it's pretty aggressive. Yes, it is. It can be aggressive, especially as youngsters go into their uh, teenage years. Mm. You know, when they, when they get bigger, they have to learn to defend themselves. They learn to make alliances with others. They have to... Um, form partnerships and coalitions and eventually uh, work together to take over the alpha status. That sounds straight <laughs> up like my high school drama 
exactly. going on. <laughs> I like to tell people, we humans are really nothing more than chimpanzees on steroids. And all you have to do is look around at the world today, and you'll know I'm exactly right. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Well, talking about your, your, your trip coming from U.S. background, and then, like you said, just jumping into the jungle and, yeah. and finding out what really you can do to, to change things and learn more about who you are and, and, and the effect that you can have. What was going through your head the first time that you stepped foot in the rainforest? Oh, it was, you know, I, I went over there as a zoologist, somebody who also appreciated the biodiversity mm -hmm. of the forest. Um, you know, I studied it in school. Although I didn't really uh, focus on ecology, I was like innately good at it. I, it just somehow it clicks with me, these ideas of internested systems and how things operate. So when I went over there, I mean, my I was like transfixed, even though my purpose of going was to teach sign language to orangutans. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the other interesting thing. You remember with Azak, the gardeners said, you shouldn't work with signing with the orangutan at the zoo. Then I went to, to Oklahoma and I was working with signing chimpanzees. So when the opportunity came up and my professor, Roger Fouts, said, uh, would you like to go to the jungles of Borneo to teach sign language? There's a woman out there who's looking for a student who, who's, who would like to find out why this one orangutan is perhaps killing an, uh, other orangutans. And there was like this situation going on, but she was also looking for a student who could help run the camp when she wasn't there. So I'm sorry to back up. You would be hired to basically investigate why an orangutan was killing other orangutans well, by that teaching was a them question. a language. Okay. That was the question she had that she posed to him because uh, they had met. This is Her name was Birute Galdikas, and so she, uh, like Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey, were the three women who were set forth by Lewis Leakey to study the great apes. It's a well-known story. And, and so uh, Birute Galdikas asked Roger Fouts, did, did he have a student? And of all of his students, I was the only one who had worked with an, an orangutan before, knew the sign language with the chimpanzees. So, ergo, I got the call. And a year later, I was going upriver into the jungles of central Borneo to start my work with a bunch of orangutans out there. Wow. So, it was one of the, the questions she asked is like, you know, this, this orangutan, why is he, you know, maybe if we taught him sign language, he would confess. Yeah, you know, you're just you're you're like an orangutan murder mystery specialist. Well, I, you know, it it gave me an opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't sure whether or not any orangutan would sit down and and confess to a murder, <laughs> even if we taught it a corpus of signs, you know, hundreds of signs. Read them I, their rights. <laughs> well, you know, great apes, just like humans, are are liars. They they prevaricate, wow. uh, and it's one of the uh, parts of being so intelligent. You can inhibit. Uh, certain aspects of what you know to be true. Mm -hmm. And you do that, of course, to your advantage, right? So uh, why would an orangutan admit to it? I don't know. I would quite sure he would probably. That's when you put the G it. down and then you give them a banana. Yeah. And say, All right, <laughs> tell me the truth. Well, the funny thing is when I, I, you know, I went there and, and I the first week or so I was at the place. It was called Camp Leakey. Mm -hmm. And it's, everybody knows, if you go on, you can Google it, you'll see it on Google Map where it's located. Do yourself a favor. Look yeah. up Camp Leakey. It's Camp amazing. Camp Leakey in Borneo. 
Um, and at the time, there was some very rough buildings that were there. Uh, there was a boardwalk from the river, which was probably the most valuable structure because, you know, if it rains and the, and the waters go up and you're walking through swamp, you know, bring in all of your luggage and your supplies, it's messy and it's hard work slugging through that, that peat swamp. Yeah. But if you have a boardwalk, you know, you're walking above it all and it's, you know, you can bring your your carts and you can drag all your stuff from the boat to the camp. Wonderful, wonderful. And and we had the places where I stayed. I stayed at the guest house and there were other places like the staff quarters. So we had a we had a real staff there that uh, that uh, Verite and her husband at the time, Rod Brindamore, had established. And I was, I showed up. There was no other English-speaking people there. I came in knowing virtually no Indonesian mm. and uh, with all these great ideas of what I wanted to do with the signing, including trying to get an orangutan to confess. But what I wanted to do really was to just get the lay of the land and I was just mesmerized. But what I saw when I went up river and, you know, the, the swamps and the walking around... Uh, into the forests, meeting the orangutans and the other animals that were just wandering around the camp. Wow. Because this was a rehabilitation area. And at the time, nobody was doing this kind of work of taking the ex-captives and returning them to the wild. This was the only place on Borneo where this was going on. And so when I arrived at Camp Leakey, there are orangutans wandering around you know, on both sides of the river. <laughs> And uh, a little macaque and a, and a sun bear came up to greet me. Wow. <laughs> it was just the whole jungle book came yeah, to say hi. Yeah, and I was like, this was like just amazing stuff, right? And yeah. so I hauled all my stuff to the guest house and, you know, had my initial encounters with the people there and the animals there and immediately started going to work. That's incredible. So yeah. when you, you said you walked into this jungle and you saw all these animals, was there any point where you thought to yourself, the orangutan is where I want to take my stand? Or were you ever thinking like, you know what, maybe sun bears or, or some other animal? No, 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 that no, it's, no. It's been pure. It was, it was orangutans all <laughs> along. And, and the other animals were um, always delightful companions to have around. Huh. Because like the sun bear named King Kong. Little bear had lost its mother and and it was at Camp Leakey being cared for, you know, being fed, you know, by bottle. And it would follow me around and come in into my guest house and, you know, I would stick my finger into its mouth and it would start nursing on my finger, like just like pacifier. And the moment I pulled it out, it would start to snarl and growl and take oh. its claws and, and I'd just <laughs> stick it back right in and keep it from doing that. And I'd have to pick up this bear and carry him out and then set him down and quickly remove my finger and run back in the house. That <laughs> is adorable and terrifying. <laughs> yeah. they, they, are, they are very um, amazing animals in their, in their own right. But they, you don't want to stand between a mother sun bear and her baby. Hmm. Uh, they're very, very protective, as most mothers are. So uh, we had the sun bear there. We had gibbons um, swinging around and showing up and just uh, 
coming to our, you know, our dining hall and hanging on the, on the fencing, looking in, or, you know, coming in and trying to raid some of the food, as did the orangutans too, mm-hmm. much larger primates. Um, and so life at camp was really trying to manage all these, this menagerie of animals that were trying to get into the food as, you know, this is what they want to do. They want to just get a, a meal, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and we would interact with them in ways that would be, you know, have fun with them at one level, but also try to keep our distance so we could help them, you know, go back into the wild. Um, so mm-hmm. there was this um, kind of a philosophy that if you were a good, sober citizen of Camp Leaky, you could stay. But if you started acting up too much and things got really out of hand, we may have to relocate you somewhere else. Is that going for humans and animals? Well, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. There were there were times where some people had to go down to, to town if they were acting up mm-hmm. and, you know, cool off a little bit. We had some workers over the years that did that. Well, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a frontier, you know. It's coexisting with countless animals. I mean, I'm sure it must have been a different... Oh, a different culture. Society, culture. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for me, it was um, completely unique when I first went out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, it became kind of part of my DNA, too. You know, I I became an equilibrium with that environment. And it wasn't without its costs, either, because psychologically, I went through periods where I would break down every six months. It was almost like clockwork, where I was wondering, what am I doing here? Wow. I mean, you, you, you do have that psychological aspect when you are remote and you're isolated from your original culture. Mm-hmm. And even though you are learning a language and you feel like you're connecting, there's still some things that are, you have to work through. And, and so I would go down at the end of the boardwalk at the river every like six months and have a good cry and get it out and then come back, you know, and just yeah. keep on. And it was like, it was like a, uh, I had so many projects going on when I got there and I was, I had ideas before I showed up, you know, I had created all these experimental designs because I, I knew that it wasn't just going to be trying to find Sugito, the orangutan who was the, you know, suspected murderer. Mm-hmm. There were, there were dozens and dozens of orangutans. And I said, you know, I could never do this in North America. You, could, you couldn't go to any primate institute and do what I did. Right. And not only that, do it in a way where the, the students that you would have would be able to go back to the wild when you were done. Mm. And, and to me, this is like one of the big takeaways from my time out there. Apart from all the, you know, discoveries or, you know, what I was able to find out about their cognition and what they could learn was at the end of it all, they could go back into the wild. They didn't go into a cage as a prisoner after being a spoiled little child, thinking, oh, look how special I am. And for no fault of their own, go go get locked away in prison because society just can't deal with you. Right. And this is what has happened with all the other great apes that learn sign language given an enriched environment, learning how to communicate, feeling special, and then at the end of the study, go to jail. And it's so Imagine sad that, yeah. when you think about that. So what I was able to show, and it's something I think is still very valid, is if you're going to do this work, and I'm not saying we ought to be teaching sign language to all the 
great apes. I think we've learned a lot that they're capable of learning signs and they can communicate, but they're, they're just going to want to ask you about getting another meal mm-hmm. or getting scratched or getting something of value. They use it as a tool, just like we do, to get something from somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you're asking me questions. You want to get a story out of me, right? Give me the juice, absolutely. You you give a lawyer some money and they'll give you advice, right? (laughs) Everybody's into an exchange of some sort. They're very, very intelligent um, animals and um, capable of understanding many of the linguistic aspects. Mm -hmm. So they sequence their signs together in a way that looks like there's some grammar there. But, you know, when you do signs, you don't always have to have that linear grammar. You can do two signs at once and you can, you know, it, it's not just like spoken language. But there's okay. enough there that you can see that it's just not random hand movements or it's imitation. Mm-hmm. They're actually cognating. They're actually coming up with um, ideas that they want to then translate into the signs to get what they want. So you you were there. Do you have results from this oh. murder mystery <laughs> of these orangutans? Well, I you know what? Frankly, we I think I understood why um, this orangutan was jealous hmm. because Birute was not only hand rearing Sugito, her first offspring that she was uh, asked to rehabilitate. Welcome back to the orangutan soup opera. Yeah. <laughs> She was also bringing in other orangutans, and she would take care of them as well. Well, you know about sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. You know how a brother could get jealous of a younger sister. And, you know, with with the great apes, same thing can go on. I mean, there is that rivalry that goes on, and I think Sakito was jealous and um, took matters in his own hands. So... Uh, you know, while as we didn't see him commit the act, it was suspected. Um, frankly, I couldn't even get close to Sugito mm-hmm. to teach him signs. He kept his distance from me. He's like, that's the investigator. I He's, know him. He saw this, you know, this white guy with his red beard showing up, and he stayed in the trees blowing raspberries at me. This kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is their sign of just, you know, Say, you would think that the red beard would help you in your communications a bit more. Yeah, right? well, it, it did. It, it there was there was other stories I could tell you about uh, female orangutans finding it attractive, <laughs> and so yeah, the red beard, uh, you know, was indistinguishable from the hair color of the orangutan. You were made for this role. That's beautiful. Yeah, and uh, but but Sigito wanted no part of me. Mm. He remained an elusive figure throughout my time there. He, um, and even after, you know, Birute and Rod came back, he, he would keep his distance. Um, he would, um, well, actually, as it turns out, uh, Rod, Brenda Moore, and myself, we relocated Sugito to another part of the reserve, even before Birute got back, which was something she was working on her doctorate at UCLA. I showed up and, you know, and was there until September when Rod came back. And um, at that point, we both were there. Uh, Sugito broke in to their home and the lab. And uh, I believe he orchestrated this raid because when he was like a mastermind, 
And the other orangutans would join him in the raids. And this happened from time to time. Wow. So you get the, you get the smart, bright orangutan, and then you get the others that are like the followers. Yeah, it's funny because it's like the opposite with humans. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the, the charismatic one, no matter what the IQ, that's who they follow. Right. But, that's fun. So the intelligent one started these raids, and then well, the, the, he the, he would sit around. He would watch the the movement of the people, oh. the camp staff going from building to mm. building, and then he would notice a, a la, you know a lull time, and so during the day, uh, or maybe it could have been at night, or well, whenever it was, I have to look back on my diary. He orchestrated a break in. I sh I show up into the house to check on something I wanted to get like a book or something and I saw the place was just covered with glass and broken bottles and they drunk formaldehyde and they had wow. all kinds of stuff all over and just trashed the place and we knew it was Sagito who masterminded it and a few of the other less intelligent ones were stuck holding the bag you know? <laughs> <laughs> but so Sagito was captured when Rod came back we decided we would relocate him remember when I mentioned being a sober citizen you could mm -hmm. stay well he outgrew his is uh, the street three strikes for <laughs> three strikes rule and it was time for him to go so we actually marked him with an earring we put mm. it, we put this nylon cord through his ear so we could identify him and we took him to another part of the reserve this was before it became a national park Okay. Well, we took him upriver from uh, the main branch to a place called Natalenquas, and we walked him in. He was sedated, and we stayed, and we made sure that he would be okay, that, you know, when he got out of the sedation and he was starting to move around, then we quickly got out of there because we didn't want him following us back. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, you know, he wandered around in the area, and he was seen by some folks for a while, you know, on the riverside and so he he was able to continue his life as a uh, as orangutan should um you know the males will eventually leave the natal group mm. it's so it's the females who actually stick around where their mothers have a home range and set up their home range and it has to be one of the genders who leaves to to prevent inbreeding Right. Okay. That makes so sense. Yeah. in this case, you know, it's the males that become bachelors. They they start wandering away from where they were born, and they start looking for a new home range to call their own and to defend. And while they're doing it, um, they're growing and they're, be, you know, they they interact with some of the other males, um, you know, in various ways. And they're mm -hmm. looking also for females to occasionally mate with. Um, to, you know, practice what they're going to be doing as fully cheek-padded males. So when they leave, they don't have the big cheek pads, the ones like you see on this guy mm -hmm. on the screen. He is the desirable male. He is the male that this female is looking for when she's ready to mate. But mm -hmm. she, doesn't get, she doesn't feel this way very often. It's like once every eight to nine years or seven to eight years, because the inner birth interval is that long. It's the longest in the in the animal kingdom for mammals. Wow. Um, and so the male will 
before he has his pads, will force himself on the females. This is one of the strategies they use. And then once they get the pads, they don't have to do anything except for wait for the females when they're wow. ready. Tables have turned, huh? And so it's an attractor. It's like a cologne. Yeah, it's like a cologne. Um, definitely, it's an attractor for the females. One of the reasons why they're so large. It's also to make their face impressive to other males who might want to compete Fair. for that, that home range. Now, notice I didn't say the word territorial because that's always used. But unless the animal is able to defend its boundaries mm -hmm. of its home range, we can't really call it territorial. So he's, you know, you'll have these these males wandering in, looking at a distance like a female. They don't have the cheek pads, but they're large. They're the size of a female, adult female orangutan. And so it's almost like they're transvestites. They're wearing female clothing, wandering into the male's home range and forcing themselves on the females. Wow, covert ops. Covert ops. Occasionally, there's some reproductive reproductive success, mm. and it has to be that way for this particular strategy to continue on. Right. Yeah. So you know, there's a balance between um, paternity with the males with the big cheek pads versus those that don't. Right. And it's stacked in the favor of the males with the cheek pads, obviously. Oh man. And so these guys are twice the size of the females and there's this amazing surge of testosterone mm. that enters the body of the male who's wandering around and doing the dirty deeds. So as soon as he does not hear the sound of a long call, there's kind of when that is not heard psychologically or he doesn't see one psychologically, it turns on a second surge of testosterone. Mm. And within a matter of months, he has doubled in size. Wow. It's an incredible transformation. It's like, this is she my adds, time. This is his time. And then you'll see this individual later go, who is, wow, wait a minute. He's got the fate, facial features of this, like Pola. Because I had, I had a student who came back with a big face. <laughs> you know, He was a little guy when I worked with him. Mm -hmm. But eventually as the males, you know, they leave, they come back and they have made this transformation. And so, but you can still tell who he, he is just oh. because of the way the face looks. Right. Yeah. And it is, it is amazing. I mean, when you look at the lineages of the individuals who came to Camp Leakey as youngsters grew up, had offspring, and you can see the familiarity and how they look uh, as, as the generations are passed down. How neat. Yeah. Wow. And, and when it came to, to, to bonding with these orangutans, did you ever feel like, all right, I have this connection with this animal? Mm -hmm. Are there, was there, I'm thinking in my head like Ace Frontera, how there was that one animal, that white bat, that just, he just couldn't, he couldn't deal with. Every other animal he was cool with. Did you have something like that that was terrifying for you than in the jungle or just some animal that you're like, yeah, maybe not today? <laughs> uh, you know, I never, I always was looking for snakes. Mm. And they have some very poisonous ones out there, like the Sumatran pit viper and, of course, cobras. And they're overhead. Uh, they they typically are. Um, Sorry, not cobras. Step on them. Right. You might, you know, make sure you look at your shoes in the morning before you put them on <laughs> just to avoid it, you know. And, and of course, there are the uh, stinging ants 
which um, are very, very nasty and it can kill you if, if they overwhelm you. Really? Well, I mean, you'd have to be like uh, in a position where you couldn't move. Right. But you get enough of them stinging you with all that formic acid going into you. It could it could make your day very unpleasant. Wow. Put it that way. So but frankly, I you know, I didn't um, fear any of the animals when I was I was always fascinated as a zoologist. Yeah. And, you know, even the crocodiles that that would occasionally come up river. Uh, I was always looking for them, but they never <laughs> came across them. All right, and you can keep up with the rest of the story on our next episode, so please subscribe and click on the next episode. My name is Anthony Porter. You can find me at Outdoor Anthony on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening to the Orangutan Republic podcast brought to you by theorangutanrepublic.org. Feel free to go there and check out the mission statement and see if you can do anything to volunteer and help in your area.